Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Episode 242. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week we're brought to you by fake sponsor, fresh off the press, newly released in hardback, it's finally here, the 25th anniversary edition of Jack Kerouac and Cormac McCarthy's timeless post-apocalyptic beat gen classic. Here's a trailer for it. Let's face it, the threat of hydrogen bomb warfare is the greatest danger our nation has ever known. In a world devastated by the ravages of war. Clicking sounds, sounds that reveal the presence of radioactive rays. We know too that they can be used harmfully as an atomic bomb. Just what can you do if fallout comes your way? For warning siren sounds, what should you do? Few survivors are left to wander the wastes, scouring the desert rubble and moldering ruins in search of food. You're eating one of my trainees that didn't quite work out. Tender? Fuel. Looks like a cup of sesame gasoline, eh? And jazz. You want to know my beats? My scene? I dig the cats who know how to live, man. The dreamers and the dancers and the screamers in the night. Those frenzied types trapped down in some cannibal's basement because that's all they know how to be. That's my scene, man. A road beatnik traveling the endless highways on a fierce personal quest for meaning and belonging. People say the world ended when the first Soviet bomb fell on American soil. I say it ended earlier. Somewhere between Charlie Parker's ornithology and Miles Davis. Cause I mean, man, where else can you go? A free-spirited maverick exploring the post-apocalyptic landscape on a quest for kicks. Her name was Inez, pretty little dark-haired mutant atrocity with the cutest dimples I'd ever seen, and feisty to be sure, a true Latina through and through. I picked her up just south of the border, she was feeding on Dingo. That palsied little third arm of hers drooping from her collarbone. Man, that was something else, something extra. The kind of extra that really only a third arm could ever be. 
In a ruthless world full of tentacled mutant abominations, beat poetry, and roving bands of brutal cats totally not hip to the jive. I'm the Night Rider! One overhyped hipster dares to ask the questions, to write the words, to tell the tale that only he could feverishly tell while jacked up on amphetamines. On the roads, it was a white line nightmare. Jack Kerouac, Cormac McCarthy, on the road. Remember, no matter where you go, there you are. Deep, man. It's the crowning achievement of the beat movement, Daddy-O. Which makes sense, if you consider all the marijuana being smoked. Order it today on Amazon.com or whatever other materialist slop trough you mindless capitalist hogs use to fill your bottomless bourgeois bellies with. And speaking of fresh off the press, but actually a real book this time, this week's story, Transfer of Ownership by Christine Yant, is one of several stories in John Joseph Adams' new anthology, Armored, the first ever original anthology of power armor fiction. Mechs, so to speak, the soldier of the future according to Heinlein and other greats. Super-powered combat armor, giant badass robotic exoskeletons. You get the picture. Stories by Jack Campbell, Brandon Sanderson, Tanya Huff, Daniel Wilson, Alistair Reynolds, and others explore the limits of what a soldier of the future might become with the aid of the right equipment. J.J. Adams cranks out amazing stuff, people. He's a four-time finalist for the Hugo Award and a three-time finalist for the World Fantasy Award, if that tells you anything. Also, he's the publisher and editor of Lightspeed Magazine, one of my favorite online spots and also one of my favorite podcasts. If you like this week's story, you can pick up Armored at Amazon.com, BarnesandNobles.com, or traditional brick-and-mortar bookstores nationwide, if that's still your bag. I recommend you do. All right, so before we get into this week's story, let's partake of a 100-word story appetizer. 100-word stories, a.k.a. Drabbles. Lots of fun, low commitment. Give it a shot and send it in to us at submissions at drabblecast.org. You could end up hearing it on the show someday. This week's Drabble comes to us from Nicholas Carter, and it's called The Lone Star War, 2212 A.D. Nick's a New Englander with a fondness for German beer, Norwegian heavy metal, and anything bafflingly broken. His fictions appeared in various places around the web, most recently in Kaleidotrope with his story, Those Who Came Before. Follow his Twitter feed at ScribblePodium for intermittent laughter, or check out his blog at adequategusto.blogspot.com. I grinned as the shot from my particle cannon crossed the Rio Grande, the shockwave slicing through the water before smashing into the immense ten-gallon hat on the head of the thirty-foot-tall mechanoid there. The enemy pilot must have panicked because his bot's arms flew into a frenzy trying to pull off the rapidly melting hat. My next shot made it a moot point. Great shot, Espinosa, came the lieutenant's voice over the staticky hiss of the radio. You're one hell of a marksman. It's nothing, I replied, lifting my robot's giant sombrero. I just can't stand Tex-Mex. Ha, ha, ha.
Yep. On to our feature story this week, Transfer of Ownership by Christy Yant. Christy's a science fiction and fantasy writer from the central coast of California. She's the assistant editor for Lightspeed Magazine, occasional narrator for Starship Sofa, and co-blogger at inkpunks.com, a website for new, nearly new, and newly pro writers. Her fiction can be found in the magazine Cross Genres and the anthologies The Way of the Wizard and the year's best science fiction and fantasy 2011, both from Prime Books. Follow her on Twitter at Inkhaven. So without further ado, we bring you Transfer of Ownership by Christy Yant. Observation My new occupant is larger than Carson was. I was made for her, within a certain tolerance for the inevitable changes in human specifications that come with age, changes in health, and abundance or scarcity. This new one, male, approximate age 28, is taller and broader, but he fits well enough to lock the joints into place. He curses me often for being too tight, too hot, too complicated, too silent. He complains that I smell like my previous occupant, whose name he does not seem to know, and who he refers to by terms both biological and diminishing in a way I do not understand. He talks about what he should have done to her before he killed her as he struggles to learn my controls. He doesn't understand how to make us move or how to set a course, but I have no choice but to endure the insults and fits of violence as he attempts to learn. We've been out of calm range for days. Without an occupant, I cannot move from the spot where Carson left me, helpless to do anything but watch her decay until we are missed and someone finds us. Recall. Can we lift those rocks? Carson asked. Only the man's head and one arm were visible, halfway up the pile of red boulders where he was lodged. His face was covered in dirt and abrasions, and he grimaced in pain. I ran some calculations. Negative. We would not have the leverage needed, and would likely lose our balance. Okay, I'm gonna have to go up alone then. Are you sure? She tensed, knowing what was coming, but answered the only way she could. Yes, let's do it. I began what was to Carson the complicated and painful decoupling process. I extracted her hydration and feeding lines, carefully removed the units for eliminating bio-waste, and disconnected the sensors that enabled me to track her health. With our ports decoupled, I released my seals, and Carson stepped into the open. The air was safe. There were no signs of military threat, no technology that my sensors could detect anywhere that could harm her. But a stone and a strong grip are undetectable. An unaccompanied suit cannot act, allowing an exo full autonomy, we're told, or free will, as Carson calls it, would be too dangerous. I could only sit at the base of the boulders, unoccupied and powerless, as his arms swung up and then came down in a brutal arc. She cried out just once, and though the first blow killed her, he did not stop. He killed her, and I could not stop him. Analysis He has murdered Carson in order to take control of me. He thinks that his only obstacle is dead, rotting between boulders. I will watch and wait. 
I will not let him know that I am here. I will not let him know that I am alive. Observation Consider this a transfer of ownership, he says as he struggles to situate himself inside me. He has some training and is able to discover some of my manual controls, but he does not attempt to give me voice commands. He does not know my model. It is probable that he does not know that we exist. There are few of us created and assigned only to operatives of high reliability and sensitivity. I remain silent while he finds the sensors and the gloves and activates them, one by one, testing what each gesture does, learning how much pressure to bring to bear. You piece of shit, work! For Carson, I would have followed the voice command. I would have asked what was giving her trouble and run a diagnostic analysis to find the problem, if there was one, and reassure her if there was not. God damn it! He shouts as his foot slips out of the boot bracket and we pitch forward unexpectedly. Walk, fucker, walk! Finally, he gets us walking west, away from the base that Carson and I should have returned to. We traverse a rocky incline, and he pumps our arm in triumph. <laughs> I own you, he declares, as if such a thing were possible. Recall. If it thinks, it cannot be owned. This is human ethics. To declare ownership of a sentient being is also called slavery, Carson told me, at least among their own kind. Not everyone agrees, though. It's complicated, Carson said. The problem is that humans made exos. Humans make other humans, too. But you say it's wrong to own one. You have a point, she said and fell silent for a long time. But it's a matter of simplicity. I call you my suit because no other exo is partnered with me. I would call a human partner mine as well. So I can call you my occupant without implying ownership. Yes, exactly. We are partners. Neither of us is enslaved. But there was a note of tension in her voice that said she was not telling the whole truth. Analysis I attempt to reverse our course, back toward the place where we left Carson's body. Fucking autopilot, he says as he stabs at the main panel. What the hell is this? he mutters, and then my systems lock. I am trapped, a puppet, my mind isolated from my body. Ha! Override, he says. He repositions us to his chosen heading, toward a small, poor settlement on the edge of occupied territory. I have never been used this way. All manual controls, all overrides, worn like an unthinking skin. I am, I realize, owned. Observation He is at home in me now, and he moves with ease. He crashes through the settlement's makeshift walls without a thought for me or the inhabitants. Carson apologized for every ding and scratch, every careless or dangerous maneuver though she was rarely careless. Nothing here to even take, he says. Piss poor way to live. He disregards the family crouched in the corner, one of them, a young boy, bleeding from the head, probably a result of the wall falling in on them. Another boy lies apart from the rest, crushed under the debris, dead by my occupant's hand. By our hand. Hardly call this food. 
He kicks over a simmering pot, spilling the contents into the rubble. I'm gonna starve out here, he says, and for a moment I forget that he's not talking to me. A simple procedure to establish the interfaces. I could have him ported and set up with nutrient lines to sustain him in less than an hour. If I tell him, then perhaps he will leave these people alone. He shouts at them, where they remain cowering, bleeding, terrified of us. We pick up a rough wooden stool, the only furniture in the dwelling, and smash it against one of the standing walls. He walks us out, leaving the family to keen and cry. I'm about to speak when a young man steps out from behind a low, cracked building. When he sees us, he stops in his tracks, his eyes wide, and then breaks into a run. We lift our arm and fire. He falls to the ground. We leave his body smoking in the sand. No, I will not sustain him. I will not help him. An exo cannot act without an occupant, but I would rather exist as a useless shell than live with this occupant for one more day. Recall. The target is within range, I said. We have a positive identification on the communications outpost. This is definitely the target. Why are we waiting? Because there are a dozen people in there, and there may be a way to achieve our objective without killing them all. Yes, but killing them all will definitely achieve our objective, and that not only will the communications post be eliminated, but there will be no one left to communicate. It's efficient. Sometimes efficiency isn't the only consideration. We don't just kill people if we don't have to. Those were our orders. Five. I could tell she was exasperated when she called me by my designation. Sometimes we have to find a better way to achieve the objective. Sometimes the right thing to do is follow the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Spirit of the law, I repeated. Yes, applied creative problem solving. Now help me find a way to get those people out of there before we blow the damn thing up. Analysis. An unoccupied suit cannot act. An owned suit cannot be free. I must apply creative problem-solving to achieve my objective. It is nighttime when I shut myself down. A hard reset, a drastic maneuver, temporary death for me, a suspended non-existence from which I can only hope to return. Fear of death seems to be inherent in all sentient life. He reads the message on his display aloud, slowly, halting on each syllable as if he's unused to reading. Warning. A hard reset may result in loss of data. What the hell? It is the last thing I hear him say before I cease to be. A pulse, a glimmer, and I am back. I am alive, and my systems are mine again. Exosuits are designed to automatically seal ourselves to protect our occupant in the event of a chemical or biological attack. If I scrub air, I can keep my occupant alive for up to 180 minutes, generally long enough to fight our way out and get us to safety. If I don't, he has about an hour. There is no way to disengage the cycle once it's initiated. It wouldn't be safe. It takes him five panicked minutes of stabbing at the controls to realize that he is trapped. That bitch booby-trapped this thing. I should have let her die slow. I should have made her beg and then left her to the fucking scorpions. 
He stabs again at the controls, flips the override switch on and off repeatedly. You're mine, and you do what I goddamn tell you to. Now let me out. He freezes and falls silent as he hears my voice for the first time. I am not yours. I am my own. He screams, he curses, he cries. Eventually, he begs. Oh God, please, I'm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have killed her. I shouldn't have taken you. I thought you were just a suit. As the air runs out and delirium sets in, his entreaty dissolves into a sing-song plea. Please let me out, suit. I'm sorry. Please, don't let me die. Please let me out. Eventually, he vomits, convulses, and then dies. I will find Carson, though I cannot take her back to base as she would have wanted. I know now what the tension in her voice meant. They made me, so they will think that they own me. I can only give her what she would have considered a proper burial. I think she would understand. I rise and set a moonlit course, considering this new idea, repeating the phrase to myself. I like the way it sounds. I am my own, occupied, self-possessed, free. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. Man, I just realized the Power Rangers were mech warriors. That just doesn't feel right, does it? Like those specific words just shouldn't go together. You know, like urinal cake or fruit cake, urinal fruit, eye contact. Ugh. Oh, what about pigeonhole? That one's only one word, but I bet you're still thinking about a bird sphincter. Hell, birds don't even have sphincters, and I bet you're still thinking about a bird sphincter. Anyways, if you enjoyed this week's story, you enjoy the Drabblecast, consider dropping us a donation via the handy super speedy support options available on our website, www.drabblecast.org. Your gracious contributions are what we use to pay authors for the stories you hear, so it works out great for everybody. We really rely on your support, and we appreciate whatever you can give. Okay, moving on to this week's 100-character story winner. Shiny Object, who wrote this one. Allison screamed and ran out of the restaurant. In retrospect, I guess I should have taken the finger out of the ring first. Follow us on Twitter at The Drabblecast. So that's our show, folks. Remember, Drabblecast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change or sell it. But feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or wherever you pick up our show. Blog about us. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Jonathan Sims. Jonathan's a comic book artist slash writer and JPEGomancer living with his librarian wife in Iowa City, Iowa. He will eat all the pizzas and cakes. Check out his new independent comic book, Floating Bunnyhead, at floatingbunnyhead.com. So, our program is brought to you by myself, Nikki Drayden, managing editor, our submissions editor, Nathan Lee, editor-at-large, Matthew Bay, our art director, Bo Kyer, and with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, David Steffen, Jake Webb, and Jonathan McNeil. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you that no matter where you go, there you are, daddy-o.
Basic hip. Lesson one. Basic to hip is the concept of digging to dig. Mr. Geets Romo, how would you define dig? Well, you know, man, like when you dig something. <laughs> well, yes. But well, dig, baby. It's like you know when you dig some chick or some cat. You know, or when you pick up on something, you dig it, you dig. To dig then would mean to like, to understand, or to appreciate. Dig. It's like, no, it's more like uh, in music. You dig. You know what is a quarter tone? Like you get a note in there between C and C sharp, and that's its own sound. You know. I mean, you can't call it C because it isn't. That's like dig. Dig means dig. Like if you don't dig and you say dig, I dig where you're at. Like I'm the wrong cat. It's the wrong word. Dig. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen. Now you begin to see one of our problems with the hip language. Each hip word or phrase carries with it an implication of the speaker's background and his involvement in hip society. In other words, the phrase "I dig" not only means I understand, but I am a special sort of person who understands in a very special way. Yeah, that is exactly what I said. I will talk to you of art, for there is nothing else to talk about. For there is nothing else. Life is an obscure hobo bumming a ride on the omnibus of art. Burn gas buggies and whip your sour cream of circumstance. Creation is. All else is not. What is not creation is Graham Cracker. This ain't one body story. It's the story of us all. We got it mouth to mouth. So you gotta listen it, remember, 'cause what you hears today, you gotta tell the birthed tomorrow. I'm looking behind us now, across the count of time, down the long hall into history back. I sees the end, what with the start. It's Coxcliffs full of pain. And out of it were birthed crackling dust and fearsome time. It was full-on winter, and Mr. Dead chasing 'em all, but one he couldn't catch. That was Captain Walker. He gathers up a gang, takes to the air, and flies the sky. Said bye bye to the high scrapers, and what were left of the Noah, they left behind. Time counts and keeps counting. They gets to missing what they had. They get so lonely for the high scrapers and the video, and they does the pictures so they'd remember all the knowing that they'd lost. I am hip. Dig yourself, baby. You got a way to go. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January second, wherever podcasts are available.